Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Erica Bloomfield. My name's Madonna, and you will see that like a virgin, I will be. My belly button is cute and round. My future husband, Sean Penn, I have found. That and more. But before that, you might have heard that our school at thestorystudio.org does custom-tailored storytelling workshops for businesses and other teams. Google, Pfizer, Citibank, USA Today, American Express. We have worked with so many kinds of organizations, and we get rave reviews time and time again. Storytelling workshops are great for team building and persuasive communication skills building. You might think, oh, well, in the work that we do, we don't really tell stories per se, but you do. (laughs) And you can learn how to do it much more effectively. Just reach out to us over at thestorystudio.org. We'll be right back. Now, here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Krong Bin behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Acceptance, especially with self-acceptance in mind. We can easily forget to keep that in the balance. Hey, don't forget we're coming to San Francisco. And that is going to be on February 4th, then to Philly on March 2nd. I'll tell you, I am so excited for those shows and the stories and the storytellers are amazing. And all the tickets and information for our live shows are always at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Kurt Mullen who is quickly becoming a a risk favorite. But before that, a little something from Hannah Sussman, the co-producer for the podcast Mental Health Mondays. And before that, Erica Bloomfield returned to our Los Angeles show recently, and I was there that night to witness this beautiful story. If you've never heard Erica's story, Life in Transition, uh, it's on the Best of Risk, number 18. It's one of the all-time classics. And Erica produces her own monthly storytelling show in Los Angeles called Revealed. She's on Instagram, at Erica Bloomfield, and here she is now with a story we call The Champion. The story goes that my first word was cookie. And my mother found me banging on the kitchen cabinet door, crying out, cookie, cookie, cookie. It was the cabinet door where my mother kept 
her diet stuff, like her X-lax and her diet pills, which came in this gigantic brown bag with a huge hippopotamus across it. My mother's theory was is that I just thought that there were cookies in that bag because of the hippopotamus. My father, on the other hand, was sure that it was foreshadowing of what was to come. I never remember my mom really needing to be on diets, but she always was with my father's encouragement. Because see, my father was a heavy little kid and his parents put him on all kinds of diets and on diet pills. They even took him for these experimental electromagnetic light treatments where they had to sign a waiver because there was possibility of radiation poisoning. So by the time he was in high school, my father slimmed down, but his obsession with weight and body image and everyone's, including his own, was cemented. Now, my sister, Lila, by the time she was 14, she had the perfect body, thin, curves in all the right places. And my father used to say, why don't you try eating like your sister? All my sister ate for dinner and all day was one carefully measured bowl of shredded wheat and bran. I tried to be like her, but I was starving and I failed. Now, I wasn't the skinniest kid. I wasn't the fattest kid. It was more like I fluctuated, and my weight was never really a health concern, but you wouldn't know that from growing up in my household. My father paid me to lose weight. While the other kids were getting paid for chores, I had weigh-ins. My sister, when I would ask her to play with her and her cool friends, she'd say, okay, but first repeat after me. I belong, I belong to the pudgy, wudgy, fudgy club. To the pudgy, wudgy, fubby club. And then she'd slam the door in my face. My mother, she was more compassionate. And she once bought guest jeans for me because my body type didn't allow me to fit in that style. And she bought the jeans and she cut the label off and she sewed it on the back of a pair of more forgiving jeans. But that's where her compassion ended. And when my father demanded that she put me on diets, she obeyed like she started packing me slim fast shakes for lunch, promising they taste just like milkshakes. They don't, like chalk. And, you know, I felt embarrassed to eat this in the cafeteria, so I started having my lunch in the girls' bathroom stalls, trying to stifle my sobs as I heard people coming in and out. The message was clear. I was a big, fat loser. It's the early 80s. 
The bodybuilding craze is sweeping the nation. My father's obsessed with pumping iron. Carbs are evil, and all he eats is a high-protein, low-carb diet. Gone are the days of my mother's gourmet meals of steak Diane and a mushroom cream peppercorn sauce with potato gratin. Instead, we had dried trout and rubbery asparagus. My father would hand me the I can't believe it's not butter and say, it tastes just like the real thing. It didn't. Now, when I was nine years old, my parents sent me to my happy place. For eight weeks, they sent me to overnight camp at Camp Pine Forest in the Poconos, about two hours away from where we lived in Philadelphia with my sister. Now, eight weeks may sound like a really long time to be away from home, but I wanted to go. Camp was my happy place. We tie-dyed t-shirts and arts and crafts and made brownies and cooking and had sing-alongs to Joni Mitchell around the campfire and made some mores. I made friends with most of my bunkmates. We'd stay up late talking with only flashlights to see. And away from the scrutiny of my father, I ate normally. And the pounds just started to melt off of me from all the activities. And so I knew when I got home, my father would be off my back for a while. And maybe he'd be proud of me. So... There was one activity at camp that I despised, swimming. It was torture being in a bathing suit in front of all the other girls. They were sticks, knobby kneed, and I was plump. And I felt like their eyes were on me. I felt that they were laughing at me. And it was hard. The good thing was is that we didn't have activities with the boys. So we didn't see them often, but we did have evening activities with them, like uh, movie nights and talent shows. Now, my sister got to be Madonna in the camp talent show, and she wore a tube skirt and a crop top and black rubber bracelets up her arm and lace gloves and a lace bow in her hair. She didn't even sing. She didn't even lip sync. She didn't writhe on the floor. She said into the microphone, my name's Madonna, and you will see that like a virgin, I will be. My belly button is cute and round. My future husband, Sean Penn, I have found. What was that? And wouldn't you know it? She got a standing ovation. Every boy in camp, including the counselors, were on their feet, hooting. And I had the best Madonna impersonation on the earth, and I writhed on my bedroom floor often. <laughs> but it cemented in my mind that I was no Madonna type. After the talent show, Chuck Schenkman the boy who I had the biggest crush on. He was goofy looking, he had red hair and freckles and buck teeth, but he was sweet. This one day, my friends and I were running down a gravelly hill. It was the hill that separated the boys' camp from the girls' camp. 
and I wiped out and I slid down the hill on my stomach. Chuck and his friends saw it all. The boys were snickering, the mean girls in my bunk were laughing, but Chuck Schenkman, he walked over, he helped me up, and he asked me if I was okay. And now, after the talent show, he approaches me, he's standing before me, and he says, you're Lila Blumfield's sister, right? And I said, yes. And he said, can you put in a good word for me with her? I know. And I said, yes, devastated. And as if things couldn't get worse, a big announcement was made. The swim meet this summer was going to be co-ed. It would be boy race, girl race, boy race, girl race. But I would have to be in a bathing suit in front of all the boys. And this was terrifying. I tried to get out of it. I told the counselors I was sick, and they took me to the infirmary, and the nurse deemed me fit to participate. I wanted to hide underneath the bunk, but I was terrified of snakes and other critters. I wanted to run away from camp, but it was in the middle of nowhere, and a horror movie situation <laughs> kept crossing my mind. It was the day of the meet. I wanted to confide in my sister, but she was humiliating me time and time again. She and her friends used to hide out behind the shower house, steal my towel, and make me run naked back to the bunk. The day of the meet, my heart's racing. We arrive at the pool pavilion, and it's packed with like 100 kids, boys and girls. All I want is for my race to be called and for the day to be over. I wear my towel wrapped around me like a security blanket, not wanting anyone to see my body. Finally, my race is called. I wait till the very last second to shimmy off my towel and get in the pool and the whistle blows and I'm swimming, and I'm swimming, and I'm swimming, and the water's stinging my eyes, and I'm choking on the chlorine, and I feel like I'm gonna sink, but I'm swimming, and I'm swimming, and I feel the wall. I had made it to one side, and I quickly make a turn, and I start swimming back, and I feel like my lungs are gonna explode, and I'm coughing, and then it, I realize, oh my God, if I don't make it back, how humiliating. All I want is to be wrapped up in that towel, my body concealed. And just when I think I can't possibly take another stroke, I feel the wall. I had made it back. And not only had I made it back, I hear on the loudspeaker, I had won. And I had broken a 50-year camp record. I pulled myself out of the pool, and I stood at the edge, and I heard all the campers. Were they laughing? I could see the pool water glistening on my body, feel my braid down my back, swinging in the air. I stood there, towelless, and I realized that my sister and all her cool friends and Chuck Schenkman, they weren't laughing. 
They were cheering. They were cheering for me. And I knew in that moment that no matter what my father said, no matter what my body looked like, I was a champion. It may not have been the end of my struggles with body image. Accepting my body was a long and complicated process filled with ups and downs and backs and forths. And I often felt crushed beneath the metaphorical weight of the negative messages that I got. But in difficult times, I persevere remembering that little girl who felt so proud and worthy. No matter what she looked like, she was always a champion and so much more than her weight. Thank you. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We're back. I farted during Yisker services. 
Yep, on Yom Kippur, the holiest of Jewish days, you know, where you make amends and ask forgiveness for your sins. I'm 64 and pretended not to notice. It was silent, but tsunami deadly because I saw the congregants scrunch their noses and crane their heads searching for the source of the stink bomb. And I then obsessed about how am I going to make amends to this entire congregation when Shrek's voice popped into my head, better out than in. I realized my sin wasn't owning my fart. My sin was being ashamed of Hannah the farter. If I was made in God's image, why was I ashamed of farting? Why couldn't I just be embarrassed? I was honoring my mother who died at 86 one month prior. And this fart forced introspection, which is what you're supposed to do on this day. So mama at 80 was diagnosed with six mental illnesses plus dementia. That explained her behaviors. After mama died, I learned the term parentification. It's a form of invisible childhood trauma a child or adolescent is obliged to act as a parent to their own parent. Well, that explained my behavior. Mama was my girl starting when I was five. When she reached out to hug me, that was my cue to hold her and make her feel safe. Entering Mama's closed casket viewing room, I said, Wow, the pine is so fragrant, Ma. I placed my hands on her pine box Instantly, I started sobbing. I found myself draped over it, soaking the wood with my tears, and awkwardly wrapped my loving arms around it, needing to give my girl one last hug, telling her, Mama, I want you to not be in any pain anymore. And then my pain was gone. I felt released of my surrogate motherly duties, and our enmeshed souls separated. I won't need to write a letter of apology to the rabbi. My fart was opportunity knocking. It slipped out and smelled like hell, but I opened the door. I saw I was no longer ashamed of our story. Shame-free, I saw my trials and tribulations of being her daughter morph into gifts of respect, love, and definitely liberation. Mama had marvelous vivacity and wit. That fart was Mama communicating to me. Hanala, embrace your individuality. Life's a gas.
It's late July 2005, and my wife comes home, and I see right away she has tears in her eyes. We're living near Boston. My wife is Amy, and tears in her eyes because she's just come back from a doctor's visit. It's a, it's a new doctor, and my wife says to this doctor, you know, I've been on the pill for a really, really long time, and I'm thinking maybe it's not so good for my health to be, you know, manipulating my hormones. What do you think, doctor? And this new doctor who must have, like, absolutely no bedside manner at all says to my wife, you can go off the pill any time (laughs) because at your age, it would be a miracle to get pregnant. Amy's tears, they turn to sobs. She plops down on the stairs inside the door. The door goes shut. She's 40 years old. She's never been told before that she's not going to be a mom. When Amy and I met four or five years before this in Seattle, it was never the dream that we would be mom and dad. The dream, if anything, like I dreamed of being a writer and I I knew it would take all my time and energy and I worried about kids for that. And my wife, before we met, she was married and divorced and alone. And now we weren't alone. We were together and we are having the greatest time and, and we... We were worried about that, about kids. We feared kids, but we loved them too. We were fascinated. You know, in Seattle, we were living near a nephew and a niece, age five and two, Rory and Tessa. They belonged to Amy's sister, and they would come over a lot. And we loved their little kid energy in our house. You know, Tessa, she weighed like four grams. Somehow at age two, like her mom found these little cotton dresses to put on her. And you'd see her crawling across the little yard we had, you know. And you would think, you know, some wind was taking along some laundry, just pushing it along. And you look a little more closely and you see this little girl has like a slice of pizza. And she's kind of like cruising across the lawn with it, crawling. And then she would take it and she would drag it across like the nastiest, most dusty leaf in the garden and then put it in her mouth. And Amy and I would look at each other like, why did that make sense? And her older brother, older, but he's still, he's only five. It was like he was born with the vocabulary of a tenured English professor. I don't know where it comes from, but the way the kid talks, it just cracks us up. One day he spends the whole day with his older cousin. They're sitting together on a couch in my place. And Rory points at his cousin. He says, you know, sometimes Piercy, he makes bad odors. <laughs> and, and this is the shit that Amy and I laugh about when they go back home to their parents. And also, you know, there are two of them. And that's, that's how I grew up. I had an older brother that I was crazy about. I just like physically needed to be near him. But my brother and I, we, we fought a lot too. My mother would turn on us and say, hey guys, I'm, I'm not gonna be around forever. You know, you need to be good to each other. You're all each other has. And that's quite a heavy duty insight to drop on your boys. But I mean, duly noted, mom, I've got it, you know. And sometimes, you know, I've been around a little while now too. And I'll look at Rory and Tessa and I, I see some things that I think are true, but I hold back. I check myself. I don't say things like that to them because they've got a dad. And I'm just their weird Uncle Kurt, you know. Amy and I, we decide we're going to move from Seattle to Boston, where I grew up, and and we're going to drive. And, you know, there's never any shift. There's never any like, oh, you know, 
maybe we've been together so long we should start talking about planning a family. No, it's it's more natural than that. Like we're on I-90 under a blue sky in Montana and I'm behind the wheel and I just look over at Amy and I said, you know what? It just bubbles up, you know? If we ever had a little girl, she would look just like you. She would have this curly hair that you have and the white, white skin, the beautiful blue eyes. And, you know, she'd be a little nervous and, and she'd be smart like you and, and she'd probably want to try to plan everything. And Amy laughs at this and she says to me, you know, if we ever had a boy, a little boy, he would look just like you. You know, he'd be a, a little spacey and, and, and maybe kind of nice. And uh, he'd be into his books and he'd have absolutely no sense of direction. And I would buy him the best clothes. And Amy and I, we think this is funny. And I can't wait to get a, her sisters on the phone. If only to give them the chance to say, hey, buddy, what took you so long? You've been with our sister for like four years and now you're talking about kids? But when I get two of the sisters on the phone, you know, it's not like that at all. Actually, the phone call's really kind of flat. There's no such enthusiasm. And look, I'm not trying to blame them for anything. It's Amy and me, if anything. You know, we get off the phone and we just keep driving towards Boston and we never bring it up again, this whole kid thing. And we settle in in Boston and this is how Amy becomes 38, 39, 40 years old and goes to this new doctor on a Friday late in the afternoon and comes back sobbing because she's been told that she's never gonna be a mom, it's too late. I don't remember Saturday, but by Sunday morning, we're heading around the corner to a friend's place for brunch. And we love these two, this couple. They live on the third floor of a building and we walk up there and they're foodies, you know, and it's like 10.30 in the morning and they're pouring bubbly wine and soon enough out come the frittatas. And, you know, it's such a sweet distraction to be with close, close friends. And we spend a couple hours that way. And then we go out the back door, you know, and we're on that, that zigzaggy wooden staircase. And we're near the bottom of it and Amy jumps into the air on my back and I piggyback her into the gravel driveway and I put her down and we're smiling and we walk around the corner, we're really close to our place and the sun is out and we're going down that sidewalk and we just don't know how bad it's about to get. And when we get into our house, there's this phone call right away. It's this guy I've never heard from before. Is this Kurt? Yeah. It's, it's, it's about your, your brother. He's been in an accident. Jay's been in an accident. Yeah, he was uh, on whitewater in a river in West Virginia and he got caught under a waterfall and, he, and he's dead. He drowned. And I don't know anymore if I start crying right away. I know I drop the phone. I know I wind up on the floor. I know this doesn't end for a very long time. I know three or four days later, a friend of mine, a great friend named Adam, picks me up in his white van and we're driving from Boston all the way down to DC because we've got to pack up my brother's place. And we do, we hustle all my brother's stuff into cardboard boxes and we take them up and they and they just live in my basement for months and months and months and sometimes I go downstairs just to look at them you know this whole landscape of cardboard and I I just don't know what the hell to say sometimes I, I mean is this this my brother he was such a vital person and all that's left is these different size of boxes and and isn't there anything more and on the other side of that question it's like what are we doing 
What do we... There's gotta be something more. One morning, Amy comes downstairs and she's got a, like a little smile on her face and, and she's, you know, a little nervous too. And she says, you know, I took a test. And I stand up from the couch and I put my arms around her and I, I leave them there for a long time. I, I'm holding her because, you know, if ever there was a time for two people to bring more life and more love into the world, it's, it's now and it's us and we're pregnant. And not long after, you know, we, uh, we go to this local hospital. There's this dark exam room and there's a table and Amy's on her back. And there's this young woman who's like, her title is Sonogram Tech. And there's a monitor. On the screen, we can see this little piece of rice, you know? And the Sonogram Tech, she points, she's like, do you see that? that that's the heart beating. And Amy and I are like glowing in the dark. We're back like four or five weeks later. It's a routine checkup, same room, same sonogram tech, same table, same position. We see the same grain of rice, but now there's nothing moving. And it's super awkward. This poor sonogram tech doesn't get trained for this. She just opens the door and the light floods in and all I hear is Amy crying. So we leave the hospital, but, you know, less than eight weeks later, Amy comes down again and she says, you know, I took a test. And I can't tell you how good it feels, or I can, I'm about to tell you. It feels really good to know it just works. Amy's pregnant again. This is, and we go back to that hospital, you know. But we learn just as quickly that actually the pregnancy is gone. And this is the day that the doctor says, Look, two miscarriages, Amy's body, it needs a break. You should definitely try again, but take some time off, which is what we mean to do. But it's definitely within three months that we're back at this place because Amy's taken a test, you know? And we find out that just like the first one and the second one, this one isn't alive. And it's the worst thing. In my experience, it's the worst thing in the world to not have anything to say to the person you love about the worst thing in the world. The thing that happens during all this, my brother's death and the three miscarriages, there's a little scramble inside. You know, I'm still in the writer's dream. It doesn't go away. But it's more like, hey, when I do have kids, I'll write for them. And if I need to read as much as I do now, I'll, I'll read to them. I want them, and I know my wife does too. And, you know, through someone in, in my family, we find out about this specialist, this IVF doctor, and we make an appointment, and we're sitting in front of him, and the guy, like, within 30 seconds, hones in on 40 years old and says, you know, this is going to cost thousands of dollars, and there's only, like, a 5% chance of success. But Amy and I were just so keyed in on this idea that we'll have each other's children. I hear 5%, but I'm holding it at arm's length. He says something about adoption. I don't really hear that, not at the moment. And we're like, look, we wanna do this. Take our money, that's practically what we're saying. And he goes, oh, okay, then we'll, 
you know, Kurt, he's going to have to have his sperm looked at. And, and Amy, she's going to have to have like a fertility test. We call it the Clomid Challenge. And that's why, like a week later, I'm back at this building, you know, in suburban Boston, and I'm led upstairs into this little room that has like a monitor, a VCR, and a leaning stack of porno tapes from the 1980s. And they just shut the door. And then Amy goes to some other place and has this fertility test. And some weeks go by, and I'm taking out the trash, and the phone rings inside, and Amy answers it. It's the doctor. And Amy comes outside and she tells me, you know, the doctor said, the Clomid challenge has not gone well. And then the doctor says, your chances have just been cut in half. And I'm like, by the trash cans, I'm thinking, cut in half? I mean, it's not like they ever called me the math major, but it's like 5% cut. Okay, we like have no chance at this at all. And so I, I go back to my, well, adoption. You know, the doctor had been talking about that. I, I was never naturally attracted to the idea of adoption. But there's this guy in my neighborhood, his name's Steve, and he's really smart. We're not that close or anything, but he and his wife adopted. And I was like, Steve, come, will you have a cup of coffee with me? I have a ton of questions. Would you mind? Not at all. He comes over. <laughs> and we're talking, I'm like, look, Steve, I, I, I'm just going to write out. I'm like, I'm nervous about that. Like, I, I have fear about, like, adopting. And he's like, why? I'm like, well, you don't know the parents. You don't know the history. You don't know the genealogy. You don't know anything. You don't know any circumstances. And I worry that there's going to be some kid that I adopt who comes into, the, into my house, and I, I don't know how to deal with whatever he or she brings. And Steve just like, without missing a beat, it's like, Kurt, you gotta cut that shit right out. You have a baby with your wife, you don't know what that baby's gonna bring. It's just part of being a parent. I was like, shoot, you know, Steve's right. And when I talked to Amy again, I'm like, you know, I, I gotta let go of some of this, this fear. And, you know, she agrees. But on the adoption thing, the clock's ticking on that one, too. Like, they don't want parents that are too old, adoptive parents. And Amy and I, we never really move off the mark in that space. We've made it clear, like, I want to have your baby and I want to have your baby, but we never, like, really get our minds around adoption and a day goes by in a week, in a month, in a year. And that's the way we say, no, we're not going to adopt. <laughs> and that's how we become the people who don't have kids. But you remember Rory and Tessa from Seattle. They grow up and they're great people and they're in college and, you know, spring break's coming up and Amy's like, you should come to our place. And they, they do, they want to come to our place. And so for a week, I watch Amy knock herself out, you know, to make sure that everything, that we're all having a great time. And that's what happens. We have a great week together. It's so awesome to have them around. And on that final day, we're standing around, you know, our island in the kitchen and we're having like one last drink and someone's called Uber and, and I hear Amy say something to Tessa, like, you know, people like us, like people who, who don't have children, like we don't know if we get to be really old, we don't know what's going to happen. Like we don't know that anyone's going to take care of us if we need that. I just hear something like that. I've heard it before. It's... It's something that comes up. It's a conversation that doesn't really have a conclusion. <laughs> if anything, it looms a little larger. And Tessa, I hear her say, 
Don't worry, Auntie Amy. <laughs> I'll take care of you. The Uber comes and I help them out with their bags and we're all waving. It has been a really, really good time. And I turn back to this little white house that I live in with Amy and uh, I'm going up the stairs. I'm thinking about what Tessa said. And I, I'm like, you know, that's so sweet of her. But you know what, Tessa and Rory, they're going to have their own mom and dad to take care of. And I open the door, I shut it behind me into this house, this little house that I share with Amy. In this sense, you know, this conversation that keeps coming up and doesn't go away. This idea, this question, you know, are we going to be okay? That is almost all of this week's episode, folks. This is the Fruit Bats behind me now. We've played this one on the show before, but Kurt suggested it, and I couldn't help but put it back on. You just heard Kurt Mullen, and did you know that Kurt coaches for Stellar Story Company in Boston and for Stories from the Stage, the TV show, on World Channel TV, uh, I've been on it. Phenomenal show. You can find him at KurtMullen.com. Hope Brush did the sound design on that one. We call that story Glowing in the Dark. And Taj Easton did the editing for Hannah Sussman's story. Before that, <laughs> that is a story we call Pew. You see? Because she's sitting in a pew and the smell and all. All right. Well, I, I'm actually supposed to end a sentence with a lower note sort of downturn at the end here so that we can then go to an advertisement. We'll be right back. We're back. There I am again. <laughs> you know, I. it's funny. There might not have been an advertisement there. It's, it's very disorienting, this dynamic ad insertion where <laughs> I talk in a certain way as if there's going to be an ad, but sometimes there isn't one, you know, because of where you live or what, I don't know. Anyway, folks, don't forget, <laughs> there's a whole other world of content 
over at Patreon, patreon.com slash risk. And it's so very necessary for us to have the support of our listeners through that Patreon. And you can get nearly 100 hours of bonus content over there, stories, check-ins, and more. It is all at patreon.com slash risk. And that is that. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. up here. <laughs> <laughs>